What is the most compassionate way to share bad news with a patient? How can I be sure about the information that I'm sharing? And what are the best tools to use to help with prognostication? Join us as we discuss these questions and more on this episode of Medical Timeout. Welcome to Medical Timeout, a podcast where we unpack all things palliative care. I'm Rashmi Kadilkar. And I'm Chinlin Ching. Today, we'll be discussing the general approaches to sharing bad news with patients and families, and also some practical tools to help with prognostication. So Chinlin, we have two separate but equally important skill sets that we'll be talking about today. Let's first talk about sharing bad news. So this can be difficult and emotional for the person giving the news, as well as the people receiving the news. And we're allowed to feel emotion. We're even allowed to show our emotion. I mean, we're humans. Um, but it is incumbent upon us as the medical providers to manage our emotions to the point that we can support and help guide the next steps for our patients. We wish that we lived in a world where all of our medical interventions will work to help people get better 100% of the time. But that's certainly not the case, and we know that. At some point in every single provider's life, professionally, he or she will have to give bad news. Um, best practice to do so in a clear and concise manner, but also compassionately. Um, Rashmi, what is your number one take-home message when it comes to sharing bad news with patients? You know, I think really it's what you just said, that we are all going to have to do it at some point. I mean, maybe we all should do it at some point because Patients often he appreciate hearing life-altering news from somebody who they know, who they trust, who has already been walking uh, the path alongside them for, for months or maybe even for years. So I think it behooves all of us to have some sense of how to share bad news because we're likely to have to do it. Our hope today is to provide some tools and some phrases to increase your comfort level with this. I feel like this is a public service announcement or I'm a stewardess in front of the plane. Uh, if you know that you are going to be sharing bad news with a patient, make sure that they are not alone um, or that they have support nearby. If you're seeing them in the outpatient uh, clinic, make sure that they have someone to drive them home. Um, when setting up the appointment, give a gentle warning shot. Um, for example, Mrs. Smith at your next appointment will be going over the results of your scans and will be sharing some very important information. It would probably be helpful um, if you had a trusted friend or family member with you um, or if you're rounding in the hospital. Um, Mrs. Smith, there's been a lot of things happening. Let's find time to sit down together to talk about all of their test results, um, what everyone is saying um, and um, the next path forward. So you just gave a couple of examples and you mentioned something uh, called a warning shot. So we can do that prior to giving bad news. Um, it's also something that we can do during the meeting or the conversation um, in which we give the bad news. And at the same time, um, we can seek permission to share the bad news. So, for example, we can say something like, Mrs. Smith, I'm, I'm concerned about how things have been going for you and how things might go in the coming days and weeks. Is it okay if we talk more about what you can expect? Um, or I might even say something as simple and direct as, I have some news to share that might be difficult for you to hear. Is it okay if I do that? 
if there are multiple people in the room, I actually um, even give others in the room the opportunity to to leave if they would like to leave, if they're not ready to hear the information, um, because not everybody in the room has the same state of readiness to hear the, the kinds of bad news that we sometimes need to share. There's a lot of anxiety on everyone's part. Yeah. Um, as the person giving the bad news, humanizing it and showing empathy means being intentional about your words and response. Um, here's another place where the I wish and I worry statements can help. And we talked about that in previous episodes. Um, for example, you know, Mrs. Smith, I can't imagine what you've been experiencing with your illness. We're here to share some information um, about tests and the next steps. I wish that I had better news to share, but your scans show that your cancer has progressed and I'm worried that we need to rethink what is best for you. Then here's the most important thing. Stop talking. Not you. Oh, right. <laughs> because when we're anxious, the instinct is just to keep talking, to feel that uncomfortable empty space. You have to be intentional about stopping. Let it sit there. You just dropped a bomb. It may be the most painful few seconds or few minutes for everybody in the room, but resist that temptation to keep talking. You know, there are studies going on, you know, as we speak, that are measuring the amount of time people leave for therapeutic pauses in conversation. Is there a right amount of time? No, there, there really isn't. But ideally, after you share bad news, you shouldn't be the one to talk next. Um, I've certainly been in situations where I have found myself really slowly counting to 15 or 20, you know, 17, 1,000, 18, 1,000, 19, 1,000, 20, 1,000. And I do that because I want to stop myself from rushing into that empty silence. If I do end up having to be the one to break that empty silence, then I try to keep it, you know, kind of short and and really noncommittal, you know, with something like, I imagine that was hard to hear. And again, let it hang out there. How can I best help you now? Let it hang out there. I just stop talking again. You might find that the responses to the bad news that you just shared can vary um, from sort of quiet acknowledgement to screaming and crying. Um, be ready for all emotions. Take a deep breath and let them emote. Cry with them if that comes naturally for you. It's okay. Every, everyone knows I'm a crier. This is a, a well-known fact. Um, sometimes I'm the one in the room who's ugly crying the worst. Um, I remember the first time um, that I told uh, a patient who was 28 years old, she just had a baby. And, and I had to go in there to tell her that she was dying from ovarian cancer and that she may never be able to see her baby again. And I had just returned from maternity leave after having my daughter. I was crying so hard um, that, you know, conversation stopped and everyone just grieved together. Um, this is really emotional stuff. It's hard and we're all human. Um, we all want our patients to do well, but not being honest about their disease is not fair to them. Um, and it's a disservice to your care as a provider. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I hope that the approaches that we've shared in the last several minutes um, will be helpful to our listeners. And I actually want to back up to something that we said a little bit earlier, which is this concept of seeking permission. Uh, because it seems kind of weird, right? We're there to, to share information. Why do we have to ask for permission? 
Asking permission in itself is a bit of a warning shot. Um, but I think we also have to acknowledge that sometimes people don't want to know what we want to share. Um, and it's their prerogative. Um, this is especially true with sharing prognosis. Um, so moving on to the concept of prognostication. Um, this is one piece of information that you should always ask permission before sharing. Um, I've definitely been burned uh, in the past with family members just screaming, I wish I didn't have that in my head. I wish you didn't just say that mm-hmm. uh, and being really upset that that was something they didn't want to know. So in regards to prognostication, um, let's start with the how-tos. Rushmi, we're often the ones to share prognosis. What is your approach? So it's interesting. Studies show that on average, medical providers, uh, medical providers overestimate prognosis. There was a study that showed that oncologists overestimate prognosis by 300%. So that is they're telling people that they'll be living three times as long as they might actually be living. And, you know, it's it's pretty obvious why. You know, for one, we we don't like giving bad news. We don't want to scare our patients. We've been taking care of these patients sometimes for months and for years, and we don't want to acknowledge that that the situation may be changing. Um, and we don't we don't have crystal balls. You know, we do have sometimes a good spidey sense for what's happening with people, and and we have a gut feeling um, that that things aren't going well and the time is short. But we're scared. We don't want to share these these uh, estimates with our patients as well. We don't want to be wrong. But here's the thing: patients don't expect a specific number. Um, In fact, I I would go so far as to say don't use any specific numbers. We in palliative care tend to give prognoses in ranges, right? So we expect that your loved one might have hours to days left to live. We expect that it might be days to weeks, weeks to months, months to a couple of years, as broad as we can be. Because the minute you give a specific number, it's on. Mm-hmm. It's on the calendar. The countdown is on. Um, and, you know, if you say something specific like two months or six weeks, um, at six weeks and one day, you'll start hearing, oh, the doctors don't know what they're talking about. They said that I would die, but I didn't. Um, and the perpetuation of false information and doubt starts there. Um, overestimation may feel safer mm-hmm. and less anxiety provoking for us, um, but it can really Really harm patients as well. Part of the reason to be honest with our patients is that we want to allow them time, mm-hmm. time to plan, um, time to do the things that they feel they need to do. Um, and that is the process of beginning to develop some peace and some comfort with the inevitable, um, the ability to plan with clear expectations. Rushmi, other than experience in a spidey sense, um, what are some tools that we actually use to help us with prognostication? Well, the spidey sense counts for a lot, actually, but I agree that it's, it's useful to have, um, you know, something maybe a little bit more objective that, that can be helpful. So there are a bunch of scoring systems out there that are specific to different diseases. So for example, um, in In dementia, in Alzheimer's dementia in particular, there's something called the Functional Assessment Staging System, or the FAST score. Um, For cancer, there is a scale that's put out by the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, the ECOG. That's something that we use very uh, commonly in helping to prognosticate. 
Um, for congestive heart failure, there is something called the New York Heart Association classification system. So all of these systems take into account things like symptoms, but also a patient's functional status, um, their appetite, their mental status um, to help measure how advanced the disease is, which can help us to figure out what prognosis might be. Um, we also every day um, use much more general and non-disease specific tools like the palliative performance scale or the PPS. Um, the PPS um, incorporates um, activity level, so it looks at somebody's ability to engage in paid employment or do their housework or participate in some kind of hobby. Um, it also looks at their level of ambulation, you know, how much, how much assistance do they need um, to ambulate, can they ambulate at all. It looks at their oral intake, and it looks at their level of alertness. And incorporating all of these things, it gives people a scale from zero, which is dead, all the way up to 100%, which signifies that, you know, the person might as well not have a diagnosis at all. Um, and each of these levels is associated with a survival range. But the survival ranges are medians. So they're not, they're not exact. They can help us to estimate prognosis, but they're not guaranteed. So what I'm hearing from you is that it's not the stage of the disease, um, but rather how the body is functioning um, that helps determine prognosis. So in general, a patient with a new diagnosis of, let's say, a stage one cancer who is mostly bedbound um, and needs help with all of their activities of daily living is going to do worse than someone with a stage four disease who is active and well-nourished. Mm -hmm. um, and another strong determinant of prognosis is what other limits on interventions have already been placed um, beyond attempts at resuscitation at the time of death. Um, when someone places limits on, on future interventions like hospitalizations or disease-directed therapy, their terminal event is going to be whenever the next exacerbation happens. And so if you have a patient with, let's say, congestive heart failure who's been readmitted to the hospital every two to three weeks with a heart failure exacerbation, and they finally say, enough, uncle, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm suffering terribly. I just want to go home and be comfortable and be on hospice. Then their prognosis is probably two to three weeks whenever that next acute exacerbation happens. Um, and that's kind of how we generally approach something like that. Um, Rashmi, is there anything else that's important to share about prognostication? So as you say, there are a lot of different factors that go into it, um, you know, maybe a little bit the stage of disease, but more importantly, the overall functioning, whether or not the patient develops complications, um, what the patient's goals of care are. So when I share prognosis, um, in addition to giving that range, you know, days to weeks, weeks to months, whatever, I will usually also say something like, you know, it could be more, it could be less. Because... It's not an exact science. You know, we call it an art for a reason. There's, there's not a formula. So let's summarize what we've talked about during this episode. First, um, when you are going to be sharing bad news, set the stage for sharing that information by making sure that the person, uh, that the patient has support people around, somebody who can, who can also hear the information and help them to process it. Second, when you're giving the bad news, um, give a warning shot and seek permission to make sure that the patient um, and the patient's companions are, are in a place where they can hear the information. And then after you give the bad news, stop talking. 21,000. Allow them time and space to digest the information that you've just given. 
On to prognostication. Prognostication is not a perfect science. Um, and we all know that providers don't have crystal balls. So number one, Think about the patient's performance status and use tools such as ECOG uh, for cancer patients and PPS or other performance scales your institution uses. Uh, number two, a patient's functional status is a better determinant of prognosis than the stage of their disease. How a disease affects a person is more important um, than what their tests um, and lab values show. Um, seek permission before sharing prognosis, this is probably the most important step. Make sure everyone in the room wants to hear it. And if not, find time to share that information uh, with those who do want to hear it. Um, and in the age of public access to medical charts, mm -hmm. make sure you're not writing anything in that patient's chart um, that that patient doesn't want to read or know, or that hasn't already been shared with them. That was a big shift in our workflow when, when medical records became accessible to our patients. We used to use the chart as a way to communicate with other providers. And so we would put in prognoses in our notes so that other providers could read what we were thinking. But now we are very careful that we don't put that information in, in the note unless we've already shared that information with the patient. And lastly, please use ranges and not specific numbers for prognostication. Mm -hmm. Rashmi, there's a new segment that we'd like to add to our podcast, and it's addressing issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Are there... DEI issues that we need to take into account when it comes to sharing bad news and prognoses. Yeah, so we mentioned that medical providers tend to overestimate prognosis. It turns out that in healthcare encounters that occur between patients and providers who are of different races or different ethnicities, providers are even more likely to overestimate. And in addition to that, discussions about prognosis are about half as likely to occur with Black and Latino patients than they are to occur with white patients. Um, in fact, both of these sets of findings were published a few years ago by a group that included some of our colleagues at the University of Rochester. And it's not clear why this is true. Why do we overestimate more if, if patient and provider are of a different race? And why do we discuss prognosis less frequently with people who are Black and Latino? It's not clear. It doesn't seem from their work like it has to do with the patient's stated goals of care, um, but it may be that we as providers um, are taking into account expressed preferences of the patient or perceived preferences. Um, and again, here's that idea of, of checking our implicit biases before we go into a discussion. Um, because the researchers identified, and I think we can all agree, that these are aspects of care in which we all have to be aware of those biases that we have, and we have to be aware that these discrepancies exist so that we can make sure that we're providing the best information and so the best care possible to all of our patients. That's a really important thing for us to remember. Thank you. Um, and on to pet peeves. What is the one thing that you wish providers didn't do when it comes to sharing bad news or sharing prognosis? For me, and we've already hinted at it, um, it's I always cringe when I hear a patient say, well, Dr. So-and-so said I have less than six weeks to live. Um, why such a specific number? Um, because if this patient died at five weeks and three days or six weeks and four days, then their belief is that the doctors don't know what we're doing or saying. Um, just say weeks to months, um, like likely less than six months. And six months is actually an okay number to use because that's the qualification for hospice. And so when you tell a patient, you know, I'm worried that we're looking at a time timeline that's less than six months, you're also hinting you would qualify for hospice if you embrace the philosophy. Um, but otherwise, 
leave out the specific number. What about you? So for me, I think it's, you know, when I'm asked to see somebody to discuss their their values and their goals of care, and I find out that they actually have no information whatsoever about what to expect going forward or about what their prognosis might be. And to be clear, that doesn't happen often. Um, you know, usually when I when I go to do a goals of care discussion with somebody, they have some hint from the team taking care of them. Um, but sometimes, sometimes they don't know. And it's not that I can't share the information. I've, I've, prepared myself to do so. I'm, I'm willing to do it. I can certainly do it. You know, it just makes me sad that, as I mentioned earlier, when a patient has had, you know, one provider group or, or, or a different set of providers who have been following their care and providing their care for weeks or even months, um, that, that me, you know, I, a stranger, I'm coming in and providing this, this bad news to them instead of somebody who's been with them um, all along. So um, again, going back to the idea that all of us as medical providers we'll have to share bad news at some point in our careers. Um, we hope that we've provided some information today that helps to make all of you feel more comfortable in sharing bad news with, with your patients. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we'd love to hear some ideas, um, what you think about our topics, any future topic ideas. Please send us questions, comments um, by emailing medical underscore timeout at urmc.rochester.edu. This podcast is supported by a grant from the System Transformation Fund through the Safety Net and Program Support Office with UR Medicine. Our thanks to Dr. Kevin McCormick and Nancy Scott for spearheading the grant and for their commitment to palliative care education. A big thank you to Levi Ganji for the music and huge thanks to Genesee Valley Media for recording, editing, and producing this podcast. And thanks to you for taking this medical time out with us. We hope that you'll join us next time when we'll talk about how to treat dyspnea in a palliative care context. This will kick off a series in which we'll focus on symptom management issues. Until then, have a great couple of weeks.